Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. Today, I'm going to talk about a couple different topics. It might be um, a little less uh, centralized on one topic this time. Um, So the first topic I think I want to get into is empathy. Um, So something about empathy is I don't think that empathy is really based on it's not necessarily based on an ability to um, see from different perspectives as much as um, an ability to see how other people's perspectives are much like your own. And I think the further that one another that another deviates from your experience, the less you will empathize. And that might be kind of obvious, I'm not sure, but it's really relevant when we start talking about disorders of empathy. So for example, I don't think it's the case anymore, but people used to say that people with autism lack empathy or even theory of mind, and that could be true. The theory of mind part might be true. and. But but I think it's much more complicated because with theory of mind, let's say they have less activity in their brain in the regions involved in processing theory of mind. That doesn't necessarily mean that there would be... Um, it's not necessarily because of less functioning of that region. Uh, Even if it's smaller in size, it could be simply because it's not being used. And I think that if someone is having experiences that don't seem to relate to other people, you wouldn't be activating that part of the brain simply because there's no reason to, that you're not doing anything that would um, spark activity in that brain region and so it could atrophy and your ability to elaborate on this ability of uh, meeting other people's perspectives would probably uh, degrade as well so it would be like a muscle where you could train a muscle and lift heavier and heavier weights not just get better at the same weights, but increasing weights. And I think what happens when you enhance theory of mind is that we can, um, first we might only relate to experiences that are essentially identical to our own, but the more that we do this, we might begin to abstract, abstract from 
our own experience and look at details that overlap rather than identical experiences, we begin to um, empathize with things that are further and further away, but still have some level of relation to our own perspective. So imagine trying to empathize with someone who has the same exact experience as you. That is obviously quite easy. But then what about someone from a foreign country where their culture is different? You would actually notice that it's much harder to empathize. And that's why we get things like xenophobia. And even with xenophobia, it's pretty interesting because I think part of what happens if people are more xenophobic is that they're essentially less experienced with those around them, or not just around them, but people in general. And, but anyways, moving back. So now imagine empathizing with someone who is homeless. This is something that people often do not do. We often rationalize that they deserve it or that they must have done things that led to their own self-responsible problems. And with homeless, for example, we often just assume that they are all doing drugs or something like this. And even if they were, we fail to empathize why they are doing those drugs even. And we will assume drugs are inherently bad and that it causes homelessness or something like this. But imagine going further, how much can we empathize with a dog? How much can we empathize with a mollusk? Almost no one would be able to empathize with a mollusk. We just don't even know what the experience is. And so could you say that people who can't empathize with a mollusk are deficient in empathy? Of course we wouldn't say that. That would seem absurd because that's basically everybody. So to think that um, that there's this kind of inherent uh, uh, ability of humans to empathize with each other, I don't think it's really so true as it seems. And I think what we really do have as a species is that we've standardized our experiences of life enough that much of our experiences overlap so that we all have relatable experiences. So cultures like religious cultures, for example, will have very standardized lifestyles where they all relate on a list of daily experiences usually. And this makes it easier to empathize because we are creating similarity between each other. And it is not so much that we learn how to empathize with differences, but we essentially learn how to empathize with people who are essentially, on some level, duplicates of ourselves. We can empathize with them because we empathize with ourselves.
And I think this idea, it's, it's pretty interesting because, so most of the humans, they sort of, their existence is memeing on some level. Um, or even the idea that memes are existing, we're all sharing these highly standardized experiences or ideas. And I think a lot of what happens when people have a diagnosis of mental illness, that a lot of the time, I think these are people who aren't having enough similar experiences and now they're facing consequences for for not experiencing enough relatable things um so for with autism for example it could be the case that their senses do not function the same and their cognition might be very similar to most people but, or at least at first, it might be similar. But then their experiences would not only deviate from normal sensory experiences, but the consequences socially of deviating means you will be treated differently. And over time, you will begin to act, you will respond to being treated differently. And since most people are not responding to being treated differently because they're not treated differently, um, even responding to it will begin to alienate you further. And it will just keep spiraling out into a sort of rabbit hole. And I think that's often the case with people who are homeless. For example, with like with the drug thing, if people we we've seen in the mice studies where there's like a or a rat park or mouse park, where the they first they the first original experiments with addiction and heroin and cocaine and stuff like this, the mice would be isolated in a cage and they would tend to. Um, repetitiously dose until they killed themselves a lot of the times and so they assumed a lot of things this study these studies would essentially form a lot of the um, stereotypes that are centered around drug addiction but later they found that drugs in social situations do not result like this so when the mice were given the same setup with water uh, that's laced with drugs, and then there's also regular water that they can choose from, the mice would not use the drugged water and the, uh, to the point of killing themselves. Instead, they would sort of uh, mediate their usage. And they would still use it, but just not as much and so 
when we think of like this situation of like homeless people using drugs and this idea of spiraling out socially from mental health issues, it's I think it's highly likely that using the drugs is more to cope with um, the kind of isolation that you're spiraling into. And then the behaviors that we see among homeless people, like excluding the ones that seem more apparently delirious-based because of drugs or nutritional deficiencies or whatever else, or even Down syndrome or autism or whatever uh, kind of psychological things that we might see. I think there's also other behaviors where you can tell that the person is fairly normal but has become like manipulative, for example, or really anxious or insecure or uh, hostile, maybe not necessarily physically hostile. I think that's sort of rare, but acting really defensive around people or really emotionally reactive. I think it's a reasonable response. I don't think that it's necessarily because of brain damage or different things like that. I mean, some of it likely is, because I think those things can begin your spiral out of society. But I think there's a lot of behaviors that are really expected for being overexposed to this sort of novel environment that homelessness is. And I think... I think that the genes that tend to lead to what we describe as mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, bipolar, perhaps autism, and ADHD, I think that originally these genes exist in our gene pool still because they lead to benefits. I think what happens is some of these genes, I think, remove you from the kind of memeing existence of society. Because I think if you consider consider what that memeing existence is like, it, it is not necessarily a place where progress can flourish. It is a kind of very static thing. To make progress is to do something that isn't already a meme. So, I think that you have to remove yourself from the standardized experience of life in order to discover something that can progress or progress society. And I think that these genes kind of do this, that it's kind of what it means to think outside of the box. The box is really just the memeing society. And I think many of the people that get diagnosed get diagnosed because they end up suffering greatly because they are not getting empathy from other people. And most people will say that the lack of empathy that society is giving towards these people is justified because of their mentally ill behaviors. But I think it's 
not really so much that. I think it starts as one person essentially being xenophobic towards some behavior or some strange uh, behavior, like some random behavior. Then the person uh, who is deviating in their behavior will slowly accumulate a defensive mentality that lasts their whole life eventually because the defensiveness will cause other people to assume that the defensiveness is for a reason, like that it's a guilty conscience, for example, or a lot of other things. I think even if you just act defensively towards people in inappropriate situations, you can actually make people uh, act more aggressive towards you without even realizing it. Like if you, if you just subtly behave as a victim, I think that that can destroy you. I think that people will begin to just unconsciously start taking the role of the dominator in that case. And then, and, and I've even experimented with this. This is something I had to learn. And this is something that kind of, I think is super important. I think the power that our own identity and ego has uh, in relationship to the rest of society uh, is all based on really like the tone of voice that we use, the words we choose to use. And like some of the time you could be being very honest and that would destroy you. But then other people who you could be surrounded by people who are similarly problematic with something like, say you admit that you are afraid of failure. You don't necessarily admit it directly maybe but you can you can admit it more subtly by behaving as if like oh man i'm such a failure or something like this and uh people will identify you as this pitiful kind of existence and everyone else might actually have the same insecurities but they're kind of maintaining this kind of facade that protects them. And I think some of the cases of people becoming mentally ill is a lack of facade. And, and I think like dropping the facade actually is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just not a safe thing to do. And I think like this might be the case for some people who are diagnosed with autism, for example, where they say they're blunt or too honest or can't lie. It's like, why can't it ever be someone who is opposed to lying? So, the facade can really be protective towards um, preventing this kind of spiraling out of society, I think. And this kind of goes into this idea that I'm going to get into called, uh, the original term is the family nexus. But I think that I just want to call it the either the societal or social nexus or just the nexus because I think I think really this nexus idea is the fabric of our social existence but basically whatever is the majority opinion of whatever group that you're in at the moment whatever 
crowd that you're among has a lot of impact on your own identity of yourself and also uh, the identity imposed on you by other people. And there was this guy, Lang, that coined the term family nexus, and he used it in relevance to schizophrenia. And with schizophrenia, um, so this is a concept I'm still trying to figure out. I'm not sure if I agree with everything that Lang put out about this idea, but a lot of it seems very valuable. Um, what it seems like to me is that, like, we could just take the most obvious example is if your family, let's say your family deems you as a crazy or eccentric person, this will begin to become a meme in which even if you act normal, people might pick at little nuances that validate it's like a confirmation bias. They can validate this memeing identity that they've imposed on you uh, with confirmation bias. And um, every time that it repeats, it reinforces this identity upon you. And I think that when you escape into the real world, away from your family, this identity... Uh, will manifest simply from your behaviors. If you act how you act at home, other people, it'll just slowly become the same situation. And this sort of nexus, I think it prevents you from changing your identity oftentimes. I think it kind of forces you to be the person that everyone else thinks you are, but it also makes you be the person who you think you are. And I don't think it reflects reality necessarily. And I've even noticed that from socializing with so many different people and so many different social circles that I can become a more developed person but when I return to the old nexuses, I am treated the same as if I never changed as a person. And that, that's such a weird feeling. And I really don't like that too much, but... Um, and I'm still trying to find out ways of changing that. It seems like something that isn't too easy, but there's there's so many... People, you can read people's predictions of your behaviors and you can like feel their confirmation bias when you return to those old nexuses. And let me see. So I think um, one way that the nexus could manifest is that you can become identified as a depressive person and it would be very odd if you were to suddenly not be depressed. And I think stuff like this is where the trap is. Like, And I think a lot of this has to do with basically conditioning, like Pavlovian conditioning, like reward and punishment. 
conditioning essentially and um, let me think so I've I've even noticed that so like for example if I was depressed and then five minutes later I felt better sometimes I do not want to express anything like smiling or anything because it would come off very strange I'm not really sure how to articulate what's going on there yet but that's something I've noticed a lot but when I've tried something like LSD for example I've noticed that that no longer exists that I can uh, switch moods very rapidly and I'm no longer bound to this identity, this kind of conditioned prison of behavior. And I'm, I think that's where all the benefits really come from when we take those kind of substances. I think that's why they treat PTSD and addiction, which are both really just states of extreme conditioning. And this is why it's causing what we know as, as ego death because ego really is that identity. Ego is like a, let me see, I have something written here somewhere. So, let's see. So the ego, we aren't born with it. It's something that develops at an early age. It is a metacognitive sense of self. It is a generalization of your own observations of yourself and your behaviors. This generalization becomes a factor in your decisions. Then you generalize a new set of behaviors that are based on your metacognitive generalizations of yourself. And this pattern continues until you are left with a hyper-generalized state that is based on recursive generalizations of yourself, until your behavior becomes a very predictable and patterned existence. And this is what we identify with. And this is what psychedelics undo. And then the superego is very much similar, except it is the identity that others impose onto you. It is the recursive generalizations made by other people. It's like a kind of um, a thing that can sort of keep us accountable. So the superego would possibly stop existing when you are in your room all alone. That's why we might behave however we feel like, but we might still hold ourselves accountable under our own ego. So the next thing I want to get into is the idea of optimism. So optimism seems good, but I think there's a few problems. Now, I am going to define optimism first because I don't necessarily think that thinking positively about the future is a bad thing. I think it's thinking positive about the present status of 
Life, that's not good. Thinking positive about the future motivates us to reach that future. It makes us want it even more. It makes us believe that we can reach it. It makes us have more energy to seek it out. But here's what I think about the present moment optimism. It is a psychotoxin. It infects our ability to be spiritually awake. We use this drug to hide away and cope with reality rather than to fix the problem. But we are too weak to make change on our own, and everyone else is addicted to this drug of optimism. So we must engage with it, or else we will bring withdrawal syndromes upon those around us, and they will begin to fiend for more. Social change requires you to dabble in optimism, but do not become spiritually lost. So, let me kind of break this down. I think that when we are optimistic, it, I think, I think we do it in groups. We all reaffirm a kind of safe and happy existence. And to challenge this, even if we challenge it with truth, we will, um, we will bring about a lot of problems because it is like taking the opium from an addict. It will cause people to resist you. You will in essence, bring people down, and no one wants to be around people who bring people down. It is expected that you kind of lie in an optimistic way so that everyone maintain this kind of deluded sense of reality. In this, you can see this when we look at stuff like veganism, where many people do not want to see or fully realize what happens uh, for their food to reach their plate. Many would rather not see the footage of slaughterhouses or the conditions that animals live prior to slaughterhouses. And if you do this, people will resist you and fight back. They will push you out. And this goes back to this idea of mental illness and even the idea that it the genes would be related to progress and escaping the kind of uh, societal nexus. So, um, to have this kind of capacity of um, rejecting the optimistic reality, I think even that obviously can probably lead to depression on its own. But I think that people with depression, they might not just be depressed because of the optimistic reality, they might be depressed because of how others respond to them expressing this anti-optimistic uh, perspective. And I think that the depressed person will feel ashamed that they have this perspective and that's a factor. 
Um, so I think that um, a lot of mental illness is really just escaping this kind of hazy reality that everyone is perpetuating. And this kind of optimism is its own nexus. Everyone has norms, societal norms, centered around uh, maintaining their emotional sanity. And I don't think that humans are incapable of living happily when confronted the reality. I think it is more like an addiction where people who are living in optimism are much like someone who is coping by taking something that dissociates them from realizing the negative things that they face. So I don't think it is much different, but I think that it can convince us that the optimism can really convince us that everything is already good enough and then we find ourselves just binging on other dissociative um, dissociative technologies and behaviors like Netflix and uh, smartphone addictions and all these different kind of things. So I think that the individuals that help society progress will almost inevitably suffer. If any of you watched the recent Joe Rogan podcast episode with Elon Musk, he um, actually expressed some of this, how he thinks no one would want to really be him. And I thought that's really interesting because Elon has admitted that he's bipolar before. So that's pretty interesting. And I've noticed he has like stimming behaviors. Um, he's obviously creative. So it all kind of makes sense. And he is progressing society. And I think that the weight on his shoulders is pretty heavy. And I think he is not rejected by the Nexus though. And I think so there was a moment in the podcast where he talked about how um, he talked about how, or or at least Joe Rogan was saying that Elon is kind of special, and I think in some sense yes, but I think that there's lots of people, even more of people like Elon who simply suffer from their environmental circumstances. And there's probably people who started off equivalent to Elon that ended up homeless. And nobody likes the homeless person. And this kind of goes into this idea that I talked about before about the privileged gene in my Escaping Eden blog post, where it seems feasible that some genes, 
involved with things like ADHD or bipolar disorder or anything that involves risk-taking and curiosity and engagement with exploration, those things are inherently more risky. And if you're doing something that's groundbreaking, there's potential unknown consequences because it's something that has not yet, we have not yet explored the consequences. It is trial and error. We learn from our mistakes. And I think some of these genes uh, tend to cause people to take those risks. And so it's possible that those genes would survive at a higher rate in the privileged classes of society. But I, I think there's other problems involved with that. I think over time, those genes inevitably uh, see themselves out of our society. I think that the way that our current system is and how people become homeless, it is almost a cultural genocide, really. It is taking whatever genes that lead to these different ways of thinking and existing, and those people are rejected and slowly spiral out and are clearly not going to have the same opportunity of reproduction. And I think, I don't know, we should do something about that because I think that those are the genes that really push for progress. I think this all really just stands to fear. Most of society that lives in this meaning of existence are afraid to engage with progress. They're afraid of trial and error. They are afraid of risk. They are afraid of the dark because it is unknown. They are afraid of the unknown. So, I think we really need to change it so that we can identify individuals who have these traits and take them out of meaning existences of society and have a specific program dedicated to making them flourish. I don't think that we should even put them in the same kind of capitalist system that is based on a majority of people who aren't even progressive. I think we should find ways to um, make it so that there are more of these individuals who stimulate the progress of society. I think we should also take special precaution just in case, let's say, some of these symptoms we find in disorders are actually based on uh, the inevitable effects of genetics. Let's say hallucinations or delusions. Um, we could take special precautions to make it so that people are much less likely to have those things, or that their delusions are the delusions of progress, because the delusion is really just an unconfirmed idea that people stick to. I think that having a vision 
of the future is really just like an optimistic delusion. Optimism in that sense of future, again, not present, because I think the present optimism is toxic. It is only a safety net. Moving back to this idea of identity, I think that the label of schizophrenia is particularly problematic because we essentially see that the symptoms are, uh, it basically describes a state of cognitive invalidation. And so, for example, um, delusions, it's usually portrayed as having ideas that are wrong. That is how most people will view that. And to be labeled as a person with a delusional disorder, it means that you will have an, uh, a superordinary level of uh, criticalness towards what you say. Uh, once you're labeled as a an identity of invalidation, that is when um, serious problems occur because the level of criticalness, like like if you make a grammatical error, people might assume that you're getting crazier or um, they might start misinterpreting everything you say under a more uh, ridiculous lens where they sort of in kind of like have a bias to misinterpret what you're saying because what you're saying is supposed to is expected to not make sense and i think that that people with these conditions once they are labeled with this identity they're also held at a lower standard where um, people may awkwardly not want to correct uh, grammatical strangeness, for example. And I think that it can build up over time because there's nothing making that person aware and they could just end up forgetting or never learning in the first place the correct um, speaking. So, and I don't think that's always the case. I think some of it is that the amount of stress that these people undergo will cause them to kind of dissociate from a lot of their knowledge or um, uh, intelligence, I suppose. And I don't know, I think that the stress only gets compounded by the label that you are invalid and then we see the this is something i always say the symptoms of grandiosity um it could be that these people are really just trying to uh, portray an image of certainty that they're trying to show you that they're very confident in their hypotheses essentially because what is common is that everyone doubts them because they have this identity of doubt. They have an identity of this person is wrong. This person has a disease of being perpetually wrong about things. 
being misguided. And I think a lot of that originally stems from having an exploratory personality. We know that these individuals have openness to experience at higher levels, so and novelty seeking. So it seems more the case that these people were, will stray away from what everyone else is doing in their daily lives and then simply not gain those experiences and thus not behave in response to those common memeing existences. So, um, once a person strays from the path, I think the rejection uh, for being different will just further make them want to stray away further. Um, that's something I kind of express often, so sorry if... I, I think I'm kind of expanding a little bit deeper than usual, but I think that's a really important element that people need to understand. Because I think it's too commonly the case that, that our psychiatry is really institutionalized mass hysteria, that we're really in another era of the Salem witch trials where we replace witches with schizophrenics and stuff like this, like, who is the schizophrenic? Let's have a checklist of behaviors that we can't yet explain that seem very peculiar. And, like, that's very problematic. The fact that we don't know what leads up to these, um, that we haven't yet explained these people's behaviors and we try to identify it as the problem, that's very bad because I feel like that, that almost is in essence just psychological xenophobia or personality-based xenophobia or um, I don't know what else to describe it as, but Um, it implies that everyone must follow these standards, and I think, I think it's a lot more complicated than this. I think, originally, before these people ever see a psychiatrist, their families have already destroyed them. Their school system has already destroyed them and failed them, because it is not built towards people with their tendencies. It's obviously built for the majority. It's standardized for someone who isn't them, because they are not the standard. So, once they've finally reached psychiatry, um, I think it can tend to destroy them further, or we give them antipsychotics, and we do know that dopamine stimulates exploratory behavior and are common uh, drugs that treat uh, psychosis and schizophrenia are uh, dopamine blockers. So they may tend to normalize you by essentially destroying what made you uh, creative and what defined your personality and what 
could have been something much greater that these people could have had the opportunity to make great change, but they're essentially hyper-conservative environments have destroyed their um, future generational uh, progeny. Sorry, I didn't know how else to work, but I'm kind of, my mind is kind of getting in a weird place. But um, they're essentially destroying the progressive nature of these individuals. And, um, and I think that the conservative mentality does play a role too. I'm not saying that it is entirely bad. I think it is a role in um, static safety. It is um, the protection of our status quo. It is preventing the kind of trial and errors, uh, fundamental errors. It's preventing the errors from destroying what we've already worked really hard to build as a society. The problem, though, is I think that the previously mentioned cultural genocide of these progressive genes, um, it, it kind of, I think it essentially continuously raises the bar for uh, societal norms and pushes it towards conservatism. I think the conservatism genes will um, not breed with those who are too foreign. So it kind of creates this weird ethno state of sorts. And uh, but I think that's that ethnostate is essentially the medium for empathy, that standardized relatability, that standardization of experiences that makes it so we can empathize with each other. And that's something I've thought of before about empathy, is that empathy, the dark side of empathy, is um, bigotry. It is tribalism. It is xenophobia, and I don't know, that's something to consider though. I think, due to the fact that I am, my head's getting a little bit weird, I have to take care of some tasks, I am going to end this episode right here. Hopefully that was pretty interesting, it's probably pretty apparent where my head changed as I've paused and restarted the recording and my tone of voice seems to have changed so who knows i hope you enjoyed and please check out my other content i have started expanding my youtube channel that's something to look into um i use drone footage of uh pretty interesting stuff. One of them is drone footage of a slaughterhouse, and it looks pretty trippy and dark. There's a mural in the front that's very happy and playful looking, but then as you rise over it, it's just gray mechanical machinery and smoke coming up. It's pretty haunting. And I put that together with some of the music that I made. 
to use for these kind of projects makes it more scary so check that out and I hope you have a nice day I'll leave the link to that in the description and I'm gonna leave you with a new song that I just finished um, titled uh, what is it again it's um, sneak into my dreams it's pretty cool um, I think the uh, Anyways, now I'm just going to let you go now. See you, goodbye.